Roll Podcast. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. All right, let's do the show. We are back, we're here, and we are ready to take a roll call in another edition of Roll On with my bestie, my hype man, Adam Skolnick, journalist, environmentalist, large personality <laughs> here. Oxygen room, room To edify sucker. us and soothe our soul in another conversation about semi-current topics yeah. of interest pertinent and possibly not, depending upon how this goes. It's all a, it depends on your point of view, I guess. How are you doing? I'm good, man. Good. I've been uh, able to get some actual exercise this week and like, you know, out there five, six days and and uh, I did a six mile swim run. Which nice. Was fun. Which was kind of the first long, like not long, but uh-huh. how's the sleep? You're getting, you're able to bank a little bit, so you yeah, can get out he's there sleeping with the like, baby. He's sleeping like six and a half hours one time, and now like then four hour shifts, but much much better. Um, yeah, he's he's growing. He's really growing up. That's cool. Yeah. Well, good to be back with you. A lot has happened since yep. we last sat down in our personal lives and in the world, of course. <laughs> uh, before we get into it. Um, be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. I appreciate that. Hit that notification bell so you can mm. be alerted when we post a new video. What we do here is we break down some events of the day. We kind of share some stories from our personal life. 
there's a loose format that's continuing to evolve, yeah. I suppose. Uh, and we answer, in the second half, we answer listener questions. So if you'd like your question considered for us to discuss, you can leave us a voicemail at 424-235-4626. So Beautiful. last weekend I was in Austin. Yes. Um, my uncle, who is my dad's older brother, is in his um, final days of life. He's somebody that I'm not super close with, mm. um, but my dad wanted to go out and be with him for the last time. And I went out to do the same, but also to support my dad. Uh, so the circumstances under which my first experience traveling were right. not exactly you know fantastic, but it was really nice to see my dad and I'm really glad that I went. Um, it really brought us together, uh, brought us much closer. We were able to have some deep and meaningful conversations about life. Yeah, And it just reminded me how precious life is and also how fleeting it is. And how when these moments arise, these opportunities to um, you know, be with the people that you love, how you have to seize them. And I wasn't looking to jump on a plane and travel in the middle of a pandemic. I haven't been on an airplane since this whole thing began, but I was willing to kind of roll the dice to have the experience that I had. And I'm, I'm glad that I did. It was, it was meaningful. I posted about it on Instagram. You said your uncle was actually upbeat too, right? Or he was- My uncle was, uh, well, he was alert and basically looking at maybe another 24 to 48 hours, unless he wanted to have a feeding tube inserted because he wasn't able to digest food. Initially, he passed on that, which is why my dad and I jumped on a plane at the last minute to go see him. He changed his mind and decided he did want a feeding tube. Uh, So he's still with us now, Mm. um, although it's kind of up and down. Uh, So I was not able to actually see my uncle Mm. after all of that because they would only allow one person a day to visit and I didn't wanna take up that day spot because he had his kids coming into town yeah. from all over the place. And I just felt it was inappropriate, but I was there for my dad to basically be with him for the better part of a day where he, at. so my uncle is like eight years older than my dad. So my dad grew up as the youngest and there was a lot about his older brother's life that he didn't know. And mm-hmm. he wanted to ask him before he passed. So that was kind of a cool thing. That is cool. Yeah. How did he handle everything? Was he pretty emotional? My dad was, yeah. yeah. My dad was, yeah. And my uncle was, still is, he's still around, an amazing guy. He um, went to Yale and then he got his PhD in physics from Princeton in the department that was made famous by Einstein, Mm -hmm. who had since retired by the time my uncle was there. But that legacy kind of still lived on, like it's this amazing program. Uh, And he went on- mind guys He went on, yeah, yeah. And he went on to design, like the help design, like the nuclear power plants for for submarines. Like he's, you know, he's like a genius. Yeah, right. And he was also an expert at the French horn who probably could have been a symphony musician. So he's an amazing guy. Yeah, That is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But one thing about being outside of Los Angeles and being in Austin was just a reminder of what a cool place that is. Mm -hmm. I was able to go swim at Barton Springs. The pool was open, um, running around the lake and and just being in kind of a little bit more of an urban environment uh, than I'm used to living out 
you know, in the countryside out here it was yeah. nice and, and definitely lifted my spirits. It was interesting though. I thought, I would have thought um, there would be, you know, a lot of people uh, pushing back against the mask thing. Yes. And basically everyone was wearing masks. Yeah. Except the guy who decided to sit next to me on the flight home. What? <laughs> you can't take your mask <laughs> yeah. off on a plane. Right. I mean, they make a big announcement. Like right. you've got to wear your mask unless you're eating or drinking, but he ordered a cocktail and then proceeded to nurse that cocktail for almost the entire flight and kept his mask off for the whole time. Jeez. They should put like non-mask wearers. They should say, you could you can fly, but you're gonna have to fly in the cargo hold. Or just exert a little bit of courtesy, like put your mask on oh, in between that. sips. <laughs> yes. If you're gonna sip this thing for it's the entire rude. time. You should anyway. get a time limit with your drink. <laughs> Yeah. But I got tested when I got back. I'm I'm fine, but it was a little bit hectic. So we didn't have COVID. traveling. Yeah, yeah. That's where you were you stressed going in. Was it was it was the airport like a ghost town or that was it pretty busy? Um, I haven't been in an. Airport well, I was in. I had connecting flights because it was a last minute reservation. Right. Flying back, I had to fly through Phoenix, and that airport was mobbed. Really, so that was a little bit dicey. Crazy being around that many people. Yeah. But it was good. I had a cool experience um, when I was swimming. Have you have you swum at Barton Springs? No, in I've never been to Austin. So it's this amazing one of my favorite pools in the world. Yeah. It's it's basically crafted out of the lake, which is really a river. Right. Um, an outdoor pool that I think was built as a public works project, maybe as part of the New Deal. Okay. I'm not quite certain. Um, but you're it's like swimming in a giant quarry that's maybe mm-hmm. I don't know three hundred, three hundred fifty meters across. Amazing. Um, and I'm swimming and I get to one end and I'm kind of catching my breath. And this guy swims up to me, probably about my age, maybe a little bit older. And he's like, hey, I love the podcast. He wants to talk about the podcast. And turns out he's a, a retired army colonel and master flight surgeon who'd been um, deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq and Jordan, like all over the world. Yeah. And, and from what I gather, like was a pretty high ranking military officer for a long time, who's now living in, Galveston, I believe, and is the chief medical director for um, this kind of burgeoning industry that's popping up around space tourism, like space travel. Uh, Like he's, from what I understand, and I might have this wrong, he's in charge of like trying to um, create the systems and the infrastructure for how you're gonna medically screen people when eventually, you know, they're gonna get on these SpaceX or Virgin right. Galactic flights and go into orbit. Go into the orbit. Which was pretty cool. And flight. the reason I bring it up- You'd have to have like a heavy medical screening for that, right? You can't just have- I would imagine, yeah, yeah. you know, I would imagine. My point being that uh, every time I think I have a handle on who the typical podcast listener or viewer is, mm-hmm. I think, Oh, people that are eating a vegan diet or they're into triathlon or running or, you know, being in nature, like an army colonel isn't the first person that comes to mind. No. And it always is touching to know that there's a a, a broader diversity in the people that are tuning in than I would have suspected, which I think is great. That's great. Anyway, it shows it's cool. you the breadth of uh people that are interested in this subject matter as well. Yeah. So it's like gives you kind of hope about the world too, for sure. Have people from all walks of life interested. Yeah, I'm sure someone's listening to you in uh, in a prison somewhere. Uh, I've gotten I've I'm gotten sure. emails from people in yeah. prisons, yeah. which is wild. Yeah, yeah. So, what do we got today? What do we got? We got. Uh, well, I think you have something special that you want to I talk do. about. It's uh, you got a book out or come about to come out. I do. Yeah, I do. It's been a big 
past couple days. Um, first of all, we launched a brand new website. So I want to thank all the people at, at uh, Emory Agency who have been working hard behind the scenes to create the next iteration of ritual.com. We launched the first version of that um, last night. So that's pretty cool. And we've got a lot of bells and whistles to come. Basically what I want to do, what we're working on is twofold. One is taking all of this content that we've created in the eight years of doing the show and better organizing it so that the site becomes an educational destination. In other words, breaking the podcast into categories uh, that um, align with very specific topic headers like mm -hmm. the microbiome or addiction and recovery or meditation, and then organizing the top episodes in each category accordingly. And then also providing additional resources like books and documentaries and other ways for people to more deeply immerse themselves in that specific subject. So we're working on that now, that will Perfect. launch soon. Um, and also this new subscription offering that I'll get into later. But the big thing today, in addition to the podcast with Matthew McConaughey dropping, which is very exciting. Yes, I was, I was, we, were, we were watching <laughs> a little bit of that this morning in, uh, at the house. So yeah, it's amazing. cool. Yeah, it's very cool. What's funny about these things, we'll get into the book in a second, but what's, what's interesting is when I scheduled that, which was a while ago, I should have realized that he was gonna be on every podcast because he was on every television show. There's no reason why he wouldn't pop up on every podcast. But for some reason, I deluded myself into thinking I had not an exclusive, but maybe, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe an inroad that other people didn't have. And then yeah. of course he's on all the top shows, which is great, he should be. Right. So my hope, I mean, I haven't listened to all those other episodes, but my hope is that I got some interesting uh, things there that, that, that are a little bit different you well, know, yeah. from what you're gonna find in the other podcasts. My question is how do Dan Butner and Matthew have the same nickname for each other? I know. <laughs> I, I think- That seems weird, that seems strange. I know. Well, I think I think Matthew was the one who came up with the nickname yeah. for Dan. And then Dan just, you know, as Matthew said, boomeranged it back onto him. I like that so. Dan thought he was Bradley Cooper for like three days. <laughs> but you have to understand, Dan is the most charming person you're yes. ever gonna meet. And he does yeah. all of that like on purpose. That was you know? hilarious. So I, I went that. up I went up and saw Dan in Santa Barbara the other day and rode mountain bikes and went hiking with him, which yeah, was great. Yeah, I saw that so, post, that's yeah, cool. He's such a beautiful guy. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, in any event, uh, the book, Voicing Change. He's in that book. Dan is in that yes. book. Matthew is not, but he will be in a future iteration yeah, of it, I volume suspect. Two. Um, Voicing Change is this book that um, I basically completed during the pandemic that mm -hmm. we're self-publishing. It's essentially a compendium of the podcast, Timeless Wisdom and Inspiration, lifted from the show itself. And the motivation behind it really was to create a keepsake for the fans mm -hmm. or a way to um, go back to meaningful episodes and see those words that were uttered auditorily, obviously in print mm -hmm. as a reminder, and also as an introduction to people who are not familiar with the show to get a sense or an idea of what it's all about. So basically we took 50 guests that we've had over the years, which was no small uh, thing to try no. to figure out who would be most appropriate. Of course, how many years again? There's going to be people. It's, like it's been eight years. Eight we're coming years. up on eight years. Yeah. yeah, there's going to be 
people missing that are certain people's favorites, et cetera. Like you can't, you know, it's like right. 50 out of 550, you know, you're, you're not gonna be able to hit everyone. But I think we got it, we canvassed a, a really good cross section of yeah. the people that we've had. And we transcribed all of those episodes and we took out, we lifted out the most kind of relevant, pertinent, impactful um, things that those people said. We put that in there. I wrote introductions for each of the guests. Some of the guests contributed essays like Russell Brand, yeah, Mishka Shubali, John Joseph, a couple other people. Yep. Um, and there's, you know, some, uh, my friend, Jeff Gordonier wrote the introduction. I'm really yeah. proud of it. And it's really a coffee table book. It's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book. The, the idea is you can that, leave it out. Yeah, it's like art book quality. So here's, for those that are watching on YouTube, here's the box that it comes in, which is kind of like a pizza box. Yeah. You open it up, here's the book, just like that. Um, lift the book out, I'll just take this one. And you can see, I'm not gonna go through the whole thing, especially for people that are listening, but you can see it's, you know, there's beautiful photographs. Um, it's really, you know, meant to be open to any page and you can kind of enjoy. Was it hard Robin to figure Arizona. out the lineup? Like, did you move the pieces around, like where to put the different people and like build a crescendo or or like have, or did you put all the athletes in one section, all the- No, like, we curated it. I tried to mix it up kind yeah. of like the way that we do on the podcast mm -hmm. itself, like not, not too much of any one thing in a yeah. row. Yeah. Um, and, you know, making sure that there's a, a, a an appropriate ratio of, you know, males to females and, okay. and the like, so. Um, really proud of it. It was certainly a team effort. Everybody, you know, who who I work with on the show worked very hard to put it on. I didn't do it myself. So very excited about it. It is officially available for pre-order now. Pre-order. Exclusively on my website. We're not selling it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Like I said, we're self-publishing it. You're so ship it from, from we're here. shipping globally. You can ship anywhere. We have flat shipping within the United States for ten dollars. And of course it's more expensive if you're international. And it's only a print book, um, right? Only print, yeah, only print, no Kindle or digital. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me, I remember when I was younger, I was like super stoked on this uh Playboy interview collection. Like um anthology it was like 50 years of the Playboy interviews. Uh -huh. And um, that's what I think about with this book, but obviously from a, your your perspective, because I've always told people, I think you're one of the best interviewers in all of broadcasting. That's so, how you got this job. By, oh, pander, you know, by pandering, you pandering to my ego. <laughs> I told you that? Yeah. You got those emails? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think it's it's so perfect to, to have, have that kind of... Uh, as like a complimentary to the podcasts that are coming out. You can go back and look at your favorites. You know, I know I, I think of some of my favorite episodes still, so. Mm. Yeah, That's I appreciate great. that. I mean, yeah. it's it's really, you know, just a, a way to canonize mm -hmm. um, the mission of the show uh, to further honor all the guests yeah. uh, and also to honor the audience, you know, to give them a little piece of this. Do the guests know that they're in this beautiful book? Yeah, I mean, we had to get releases from oh, them okay. and talk. Yeah, they're, they all know, and they're all being shipped a book right now. <laughs> the book- You're not gonna be surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the that book, role guy put me in his book. Right. Um, no, they all had to sign off on it, okay. uh, including your boy Goggins. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna talk a little bit more about him yeah. in a minute. Yeah. Uh, the book is shipping November 10th. 
Um, but it is, like I said, available for pre-order now. So if you wanna learn more about it and reserve your copy, go to richroll.com slash VC or voicingchange.com. I like it. Check it out, super proud of it. And I wanna thank everybody who I worked with who worked very hard to create it. It's a beautiful book. Nice work. Yeah, man. There's another big thing coming up that we've all been thinking about. <laughs> we can't help but think about it. It's everywhere. Even if you're not in the United States, which you is know weird, what? right? That's what's so funny is that, but it's not that funny. Like, so the debate, people in Australia watch the debate. Right. And they like it because it's entertaining. I, I remember when Rob Ford was the mayor of Toronto. Right. I loved Rob Ford stories. <laughs> I couldn't get enough Rob Ford stories. I love them because he was so wacky and he they couldn't get rid of him. And, and now- we have uh, not a Rob Ford, but we have our own situation where people who don't live here think it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With very real world ramifications. With very real world ramifications, yeah. it affects everyone. But uh, we have a week to go. This is a very unique moment in history. We've never seen anything quite like this before. Mm -hmm. I mean, because we weren't around during the Woodrow Wilson pandemic. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Where, do you, where, where are we in this moment, Rich? I think we're at, a very important turning point mm -hmm. in the history of our country. And I wanna say upfront that this podcast has never been a political podcast. I'm certainly not a political pundit. Um, and for anybody who's been tuning in for a while, there shouldn't be any confusion about where I stand on all of this. But in the event that it needs to be said, I'm casting my vote for integrity and for character and for the environment and for stability. And so I'm voting for Joe Biden, the Biden-Harris ticket. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's really important, irrespective of your politics, that you take a stand for character and integrity and that we uh, dispense with this narcissistic, egomaniacal, compulsively lying orange goblin and vote him out of office once and for all so that we can move forward with some level of cohesion for the future of our country. Yeah, here, here, man. The way I try to explain it to people who are maybe leaning Trump, and I don't know that many, but I do know some. And what I try to say is, if you care about the ocean and you care about the environment, you cannot vote for it's, it's Voting for Trump is the opposite of that mm -hmm. because he's already trying to reduce the size of marine protected areas. He's trying to open up previously protected land to development. He's waiving environmental laws to build a border wall. There's so much, I could go on and on and on. If you care about the ocean, you care about the land, you care about animals, there's really only one vote you can possibly make. Mm -hmm. And that's not even getting to the part if you care about people. And I think the divisiveness that you're mentioning, it's time to vote for love over fear. One guy's kind of playing into this big, the big hack and helping to divide us and helping to hack us. And uh, the other guy, he's not the most captivating candidate we've ever had. Yeah, I mean, it's not like, you know, Biden is the choice candidate of no. all time. I'm not saying that, but to the people who you know leave comments and 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 point out all of you know Biden's misdeeds or or you know his failures or uh, you know why he's not perfect, that's not the decision that we're here to make. We're not adjudicating that right now. We're adjudicating between Trump and Biden. Yeah. And so who is it going to be? 
you know, he's Biden for whatever you might think of him. And the debate stage is not necessarily the best place for him to reveal his gifts, but he isn't, he does seem like a nice guy. And we could use a little more nice guy. He's certainly here. A, a decent, <laughs> a decent human being yes. who who a has a heart guy. and is capable yes. of compassion. Yes, and, and that's what we I need. think we need a little bit of that right I agree. now. But we don't know what will happen. A lot could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm optimistic so far. The uh, turnout in the mail-in voting is through the roof in terms of youth doing it. That is a good sign. But there's also this idea that. Uh, mail-in ballots always skew blue. It's called the, what is it? The blue shift. Mm-hmm. And um, the the night of the election, the election day ballots um, could be, could reveal a Trump victory at first that would shift later, which could be problematic. Um, so we don't know how it's gonna go. It could take a day to find out who won. It could take weeks. It could take over a month. Uh, I think that we're, uh, so used to knowing that day mm-hmm. that and and somehow if it takes longer it seems more suspicious when in reality it seems like the longer it takes we should trust the result more <laughs> but we're just not wired that way no the longer it takes the the more we so distrust in those results and i think two things i mean i think first of all it's highly unlikely that we're going to have um decisiveness at the end of election day yeah i think that it's more likely than not that it's gonna take weeks or months. So the, the election is certified on December 9th, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so that's- is December 9th or 14th, I forget. I can't remember, yeah. it's somewhere around that time. Yeah. I think it's unlikely that we'll, that we'll know before that date, but my hope is that upon that date that we will have some level of certitude. Um, yeah. And the second thing is short of a landslide and with the foundation that Trump has been laying, around distrust of results, what happens in the event that, and I, I think, uh, you know, potentially likely event that he just decides he's not gonna leave. Right, so there's a great Radio Lab episode we can link to that's mm-hmm. called What If that came out. And um, my buddy Reese Pacheco at WSL Pure sent me that, so shout out Reese. Um, and they did these war games with some Washington insiders, you know, people who worked at the Pentagon, people who worked for the Democratic Party, Michael Steele, the Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he ran the Republican Party at one point. A bunch of people that you've heard the names of, and some people you haven't, but have higher up in in, in Washington. They got together and they did kind of war game scenarios, like where they'd actually roll dice, like it was a little D&D, a little kind of mm-hmm. um, brainstormy, you know, war room stuff. And uh, different people got divided up into teams and they played, I'm Biden campaign, I'm the Trump campaign, I'm so-and-so and so-and-so. And And, uh, they revealed, the due takeaways are, it is possible that um, a governor or a legislature in a state level could send electors that are not um, bound by the popular vote in a state. Although the Supreme Court has ruled that that's unconstitutional, that could still happen, it is possible. it's also possible that the Joint Chiefs of Staff can decide who they trust to give the nuclear codes to. Mm-hmm. And they have the power to take them from Trump and give them to Biden mm-hmm. in a disputed election. So all these things could, there are what if scenarios. I mean, I personally am optimistic about a blue, a big blue wave, um, 
but you know, what do I know? I thought we'd win it. <laughs> yeah. I thought, I thought Hillary Clinton would be the president. Well, so really if we know that. anything, yeah. it's not to uh, put too much trust in the way things have gone down in the past yeah. and that truly anything can happen. Anything we can need happen. to be prepared for anything happening. Which brings me to the new segment, the quick five. Are you ready for the quick five? I'm not sure I am. This is the quick five. You're just is, springing, I'm gonna ask, the, you're springing this on I'm gonna me. Give you, I don't know where this is gonna I'm go. Gonna, I'm gonna give you a, uh, a subject and I want a quick five takes from you. Five things from the top of your mind, okay? All right. Quick five. So tell me why, explain to me why no matter what happens on election day, whoever wins, even not election day, whoever wins the election period, why everything will be okay. Mm. Have you ever seen that Charles and Ray Eames uh, film, The Power of 10? I have not. So it's a little short film that these des the designer, the legendary yeah. designer couple yeah. who create all the furniture and architecture created. It's, it's on display, it's on permanent display at the Air and Space Museum in Washington, DC, which is where I saw it as a kid and I never forgot it, but it's basically a telescoping up from somebody sunbathing in a park in Florida, and it moves upward in altitude at the power of 10, like every, at, at interludes of a couple seconds or whatever. So you, until you see this person, you know, like a drone flying above them, and then from the perspective of an airplane, and then from orbit, and then you just, further and further distance yourself from them I like it. until you gain some perspective on just how small all of us are mm. on this tiny little blue orb hurling itself through space. Mm. And our biggest problems are then placed into proper perspective. Over the course of history, you know, regimes have risen and fallen, you know, empires have dominated the planet and then been overthrown. Mm -hmm humanity somehow finds a way to prevail. So that's one so big, big- Basically in the greater scheme of things, I think we're gonna be okay. In the greater we're scheme We're dealing of things, with something that's very dramatic, yeah. not to, you know, not to like diminish, I think um, the impact of what's gonna happen can have on, on everyday lives all and over America happened. and the world and what has happened, of course. Um, but we have air to breathe. We still have clean water to drink, which we're gonna we're gonna get into more about that in a right. minute. Um, and we can all find things to be grateful for. And there are only so many things that we have control over. We can cast our vote, we can make our voices heard, we can assemble, we can do all of these things that we have fundamental rights to do. But ultimately, um, we have to find a way to trust and have faith in a plan that exists, lives and breathes outside of ourselves and to continue to live our lives um, with some level of peace that we can't control everything. So let's see if we have five things. One is this is all smaller than we think it is. When you look from space, this doesn't register. Right. Two, the simple That's things. kind of nihilistic though. Yeah, but I kind of <laughs> like it. It's a little dark, but I like yeah. it. Um, then you have, we have the air to breathe, we have water to drink. If we have food on the table, if we're feeling safe, that's, you know, 
we can take, and we have each other and we have each other then you said something about uh what else the serenity prayer essentially yeah understanding and appreciating that there's only so many things that we can control mm-hmm. and those things are very limited so if you remember that and you control what you can control mm-hmm. then everything will be okay in your world right and also that every problem doesn't need to be your problem. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is we're all in some sense victims of a news cycle that wants us to believe that every problem is our problem and it ratchets up our anxiety, but doesn't give us a, a productive outlet for that energy, Yeah. right? So we don't have to hang on every facet of the news cycle. Yes. You know, I didn't watch the second debate because my mind's made up. I didn't really need to see it. I caught some clips of it later, um, but I don't need to be informed at the micro level on that specific decision because I've made that decision. Yeah. And I don't need to ratchet up my anxiety and you know, threaten my own sort of you know, sense of equanimity over that event. You made the right decision because I was watching it with Zuma and about 20 minutes in, he, he, he expressed exactly how I felt about it when he threw up all over my shirt. <laughs> right. And are you better for having watched it? No, it's not as if you were terrifying. gonna, it's I not as it. if you were gonna change your mind. <laughs> no, and the problem, the reason I don't like it is because God, I'm, Biden's great, but he does have, because he has a history of stuttering and it's harder for him, debate format's not a great mm-hmm. place for him. And then Trump is the more commanding presence. And unfortunately people are drawn to that. So if you're a, a supporter of Biden and you really want this thing to change, it's only gonna drive your anxiety because you're gonna look for reasons why he's A perfect losing. example of something yeah. you can't control. Right. But the one thing I would also, that, that's great, by the way, what you just said is that like basically keep it into, you, you can't make the world's problems your problems all the time. You gotta get through your mm-hmm. day. Um, and, that, and that's one way, making it okay, right? Mm-hmm. You, have, you do have the control to make your life okay, to make your life better on the, on the individual level. At least we do here. And that's one thing I think, um, a fifth thing, I'll add a fifth thing for you, is that remember when the COVID started and like the em- there were empty shelves everywhere in the grocery store and people were terrified that like, yeah. think, you know, they were building the remote hospital at uh, Dockweiler State Beach. And I was joke texting with my buddy. I'm like, hey dude, if I end up at a trailer in Dockweiler, please come get me. <laughs> right? <laughs> and he's like, right. me too. And so that kind of thing was happening. We were, we were all kind of wondering what was gonna happen next, but the food systems did not break down. Mm-hmm. The power systems did not break down. We did not break down. We had people step up. We had people in hospitals step up. There are good people throughout this country in every city and every town trying to make it work and not trying to divide, but trying to make it work. And that is what I rely on. We are bent, but we are not broken. Mm-hmm. And no matter what happens, we won't, we, we won't be broken. Yeah. And that's, that's my, uh, I believe that we won't. And so that kind of faith I have, um, it's not even a spiritual faith. It's just faith on what I've seen with the caliber of people that do exist in this country on, in both parties and that we, we can be bent, but we're not gonna break. Yeah. And um, that's what's happened so far. I think that's a great point. Yeah. Um, I believe we talked about this previously, I can't recall, but we have this sense that, or many of us have this sense that, that Twitter and these social media platforms are a proxy for where right. most Americans are mentally, emotionally. Yeah. 
And in truth, Twitter is like 2% of the American population or yeah. 2% of the American population is on Twitter. Right. And we over index for the importance of the conversations that are going on there as a litmus test for the conversations that are going on at you know the Panera Breads across America. And I just don't think it's accurate. And as somebody who you know just traveled and was in a bunch of airports and you know talking to a lot of people along the way, I'm always left hopeful from those exchanges, realizing that the tactile one-on-ones that you have with people when you go out on the road are very different from the picture that gets cast on social media, which gives us uh, you know this this sense that we're more fractured than I think we actually are. Yeah. And I think we are being tested and our systems, our institutions are being challenged and they are being bent, but I have faith in our democratic processes. And I think that democracy is more resilient than perhaps we are willing to trust at the moment. And we're gonna find out, but I don't out. think that we're on the precipice of democracy completely failing. I don't no. believe that. And even though we talked about kindling and civil war, I don't think we're gonna have that either because quite frankly, that takes a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. And Americans are not really <laughs> gonna leave Netflix and the couch yeah. to go fight a civil war over uh, a, a presidential candidate. I suspect there'll be whatever happens, there'll yeah. be skirmishes. There'll be skirmishes. Um, but I don't see that escalating into you know some kind of systemic cultural warfare that's going to you know betray our institutions wholesale. I agree, and I think that what you were just talking about relates to that. There was an op-ed by some political scientists that I read in the New York Times, I think, the last couple of weeks, and it was that it talked about that Twitter percentage, but it also mm-hmm. talked about that actually eighty percent of Americans. Don't don't give a fuck about politics mm. even now. Even mm. with this, we're supposed to be so polarized, but eighty percent of Americans actually are not that polarized. They're kind of in the middle. And it used to be when I was kind of really was in my activist days before I was uh, writing for a living. That kind of thing would be discouraging because you'd think, oh God, eighty percent of people are apathetic. But now it like is comforting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Eighty percent of people just want to get on with it, you know, mm-hmm. and that's actually comforting for me now. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I don't know what that means. Maybe it's because I'm a dad now, or something, or I don't know. You're getting soft. I've gotten soft. Your revolutionary streak is yeah, but my feet are still are still not soft. Yeah, I'm not tender footed. Well, <laughs> we'll have more information in a week. We'll know. We'll know. We'll know next time. For the for the election, I'm glad this, I'm glad it's happening. Glad yeah, we're getting and, to the point. And to kind of close this section out, yeah. I mean, just you know, look, regardless of your political perspective, go and have your voice be heard. Yes, cast your vote um, and participate in this democratic experiment that yeah. still is continuing to evolve. Just know, if you vote for Trump, you hate whales and dolphins <laughs> and baby <Right>. dolphins. <laughs> okay, <laughs> just kidding. All right, well, man. No. what do we got next? <laughs> Um, that was a joke, friends. Yeah. Um, so next, the big story. I think that kind of like this whole thing with the election, it kind of te- teases to this theme of um, we need to be responsible for cleaning our own house, for taking care of our own 
shit and like making sure that we really close the loops within ourselves and within our communities and within our country. And this story kind of gets into that in a way. It was it, It's uh, a story about barrels of DDT that were discovered in the deep water, 3,000 feet deep um, in the channel between Catalina and Palos Verdes. Mm-hmm. And, um, Which is essentially for people that don't know, just off the coast of Los Angeles. Yeah. It's about, what is it? Like 28 miles from, yeah. from Palos Verdes to Catalina. Yeah, and it's somewhere in the middle there in the mm-hmm. channel and 3000 feet deep, they, they dumped these barrels. Some of them were actually hacked with a, an ax in order to so sink would, them because right. they were floating. And so they were just leaking DDT. They're just leaking this DDT. was in the 70s. Yes. Uh, even before that, I think it was prior to the somewhere between the 40s and the 70s because mm-hmm. it was over a period of time. But um, so this was, I think, Pulitzer level reporting from Rosanna Shia. She's an environmental reporter at the New York at the LA Times. Excuse me, it's the LA Times story, and D, it kind of points out the DDT is this nightmare that never ends. For those who don't know, I'm not going to try to pronounce DDT. I'm not a scientist, and I'd screw it up. Do you know how to pronounce that word? It's uh, a very long word. It's the longest word I've ever seen. I don't. But it was uh, it first was synthesized in 1874. It became um, a Swiss chemist kind of uh, discovered the uh, its insecticide properties, and then it was deployed in World War II by the Allies to control malaria and typhus among troops and civilians, mostly in the South Pacific. Um, and uh, and then it was deployed as an insecticide, as a pesticide all over the United States. And it was kind of responsible for the agrarian revolution, all this food, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. people gave DDT props for allowing us to grow incredible amounts of food and export it. Yeah. And um, kind of fuel prosperity is what people thought. It was, it's basically the the precursor to what would later become glyphosate. Right. It was the OG <laughs> pesticide. It was the OG. Right? Right. And but, by the way, it's dichloro diphenyl trichloroethane. All right. I believe is how you pronounce it. So Paul Hermann Müller from Switzerland, he's the guy that first kind of found these insecticide properties, but strangely, he was not in favor of, of utilizing it as a pesticide because he knew that we don't know how it's going to interact with life. And mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't know the long, and it needs to be studied for years. And um, he was right, of course, that it, you know, that, that it should have been discovered for years because then sometime around 1962, a marine biologist named Rachel Carson, you probably have heard of because of her book, Silent Spring, she was able to trace it or posited that this rampant use of DDT and pesticides in general were killing birds. And mm-hmm. you know, not just any birds, but peregrine falcons, bald eagles, lots of birds. And, and, and like all of a sudden the sky was silent in spring. Mm-hmm. She was a marine biologist, by the way. Her book, The Sea Around Us, which was published in the early 50s is actually absolutely incredible. I read it recently, won the National Book Award. She's amazing. She's like on that Mount Rushmore of women in science with Jane Goodall and, and uh, Sylvia Earle. Yeah. Right. And, and basically DDT is almost entirely responsible for the near extinction of bald eagles. Right. Which is crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. And and certainly it chased them from the Channel Islands here. And so basically this company in LA after the war, Montrose Chemical Corporation, opened a plant in Torrance in Southern California here. And they cashed in big on the DDT, uh, kind of boom. The US used to, it used to make 80 million pounds of DDT every year. It's incredible. Um, 
And then anyway, 19, after Carson's book, 1972, finally a law was passed saying you can't use DDT anymore. It was, it was traced to harming the environment. And, and human health. And human health. And then, um, yeah. So it's crazy. Basically, there was some of that DDT was getting into the sewage system and flowing offshore right around Palos Verdes in 200 foot deep water, very close to shore. That became a super fun site. And that was very, you know, Montrose Chemical Company and the EPA were in a big legal battle over that. But no one really paid attention to the fact they were also dumping barrels of the stuff in the deep water. Right. That was kind of, nobody even knew about it until like seven years ago, five, five to seven years ago. And at the time yeah. it was legal to do so? It was legal to do so. It was legal because- You could just go out into the ocean and dump whatever because the ocean is so vast, it'll just absorb whatever toxicity it's faced with. And it reminds me of, that scene in Mad Men, mm -hmm. do you remember? Which one? There's one scene in one of the episodes where they're having a picnic like on a park and yes, they've got I all this remember. food out I and like fast food that. or whatever. And then when they're done, they just get up and walk away and yeah. they just leave all their garbage sitting there on the yeah. park. But the Drapers were you know? kind of greedy people. But that was a cultural moray of the time. People used to just throw their paper drink cup out the window when they were driving and never think twice about it. Well, right. Well, that's the big problem with the plastic in, in Southeast Asia, because it used to be when you went and got your noodles at the, at the stall, it was wrapped in a banana leaf and mm -hmm. you could throw it out and nothing would be a problem. And now it's in a plastic bag. And for years, people didn't realize the problems that with just now do, it's, it's doing been corrected now, but right. it was a cultural thing that had to shift, like give a hoot, don't pollute, it has to happen everywhere. So how does this reporter discover this? Like, this is kind of a big breaking story. I mean, it was me, published in the LA Times yeah. and they did kind of one of those beautiful graphic photograph heavy, uh, you know, kind of presentations of it where yeah. it's, it's very much a visual story as, as it is a, a journalistic story. Yeah, so I mean, I think that the, the, this an academic from UCSB had kind of was studying methane, um, not leaks, I guess methane seeps mm -hmm. um, in the deep water, and had had gotten access to a, a, a ROV, a, a robot that could kind of go down there and study this, and they they completed their studies and still had a little time. And I think there he had a hunch that there was something going on, and there were barrels out there. I mean, he'd been following that a little bit, and he. Uh, was able to locate, he and a research assistant right. were able to locate about 60 of these barrels uh, just leaking DDT everywhere and take samples. And periodically people had been onto this story, but what I think makes the report so great is that she uh, spent the time to go back into the logs and was able to trace them to Montrose mm. um, through the logs and through through kind of uh, people had still had these files, they still existed. Right, And so she could trace it to Montrose. Mont and Montrose had paid a hundred plus million dollar settlement to the EPA without admitting fault. Mm -hmm. And that had this one of those beautiful legal kind of ties, uh, ribbons on top, which basically is supposed to anything you discover falls under. Right. Anything you discover in the future so falls this, under this. this discovery doesn't obviate that settlement. Like no. that doesn't expose them to any additional liability. From what, from my read on that story, it doesn't seem to be. Yeah. So, but so someone's, now, got, yeah, so who's gonna clean it up? Right, so now we're faced with trying to clean this up. And right. these, are these barrels, I mean, if they've been down there forever, are they still leaking? They're still leaking. Apparently DDT does not dilute very well. They're, they're, so it depends on the on the samples they're getting, but one sample was 40X, the super fun site at, Palos Verdes, which I've been to that super fun site offshore on a boat and you still see people fishing there. 
Mm. I mean, it's like, the, that's, that's and that's crazy. the point, right? So yeah. we treat the ocean and it's not just us, by the way, it's all over the world. The ocean has been treated historically that way because we didn't have an understanding because the, the dominator culture that we developed in, that we all grew up in, um, does not look at things holistically or ne- mm-hmm. there hasn't to this point, right? That's what we all wanna push for. We wanna push for a holistic view of, on, of land and life. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've just never gotten there. Um, and so, but what that means is like people are actually fishing for, you know, f- in areas where fish have come up with lesions and tumors, you know, where sea lions have been found and, and dolphins have been found dead with the high concentrations of DDT in their blubber. I mean, this is all detailed in this story. Um, and it just makes me think like, you know, the way that we view, I mean, first of all, the ocean gives us our every second breath and we're treating it like a dumping ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just got to change that, that has to change. Well, there's just this sense that it's so vast that we can't possibly harm it. And yeah. yet, you know, fishing has become overfishing by definition. We've, we've completely overfished the oceans. The, the statistics on the denigration of coral reefs are like staggering. I just mm-hmm. read something like the other day about how half of the Great Barrier Reef is now dead, Mm -hmm. half of it. Mm -hmm. We are past that tipping point where every additional strain on the ocean has very serious downstream implications. And we've got to reverse this. It's unbelievable that we treat this resource in this way. And it's really a mindset shift as much as it is anything else. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're we're, we're at a point now where um, we know what the ocean does for us, right? It's, it's absorbing carbon, it's, it's cr- giving us food, it's giving us oxygen, um, we know that. And yet even today, there are companies lining up to try to, something called deep sea mining to get precious minerals we need right. in our tech. And in, in, in remote South Pacific countries that are giving them the permits, it's all lined up to go. And we don't know the ramifications of the silt that's gonna come up from that, how mm-hmm. that will affect life at the deep sea or in the mid sea. It's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And we just make this mistake over and over again, um, this idea of short-term gain financially for, uh, for a long-term problem that we have to live with like DDT. They didn't think this, that's the thing is the people dumping this DDT didn't think it was going to hurt the ocean, like you said. Right, they, but they, they were cutting. They were they, they were cutting they, corners. They were cutting corners. This this was a shortcut. Yeah. And if the barrels didn't sink, let's just poke holes in them and let the DDT flow out. <laughs> I mean, they had to know like this is not good, but like who's ever going to find out? Right. You know. Right. And to your point of this being kind of um, an example of the importance of cleaning house on an individual level. It's the idea that these corners that we cut or these things that we try to push aside and and rationalize always come back. Yeah. Right? The DDT is always found. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't break down. No. Right? It remains there and it took many years but it was ultimately discovered. So how do you think about how that applies to our individual responsibility? Well, I mean, I think we as a culture, I see it in a lot of different places where we don't want to take responsibility because it's, it, it's a lot of work. 
And um, on an individual level, sometimes we don't want to do the little things at, mm-hmm. at the house and, and batten down the hatches and, you know, like put away the clothes. and, and, and Right, or put the recycling stuff in the recycling oh, and do yeah. the composting and right. all of that. We don't want to because it, it's, it's a pain in the ass. But if you don't do those kinds of things, there are ripple effects in the future. You could look at the Supreme Court justice that's happening right now, right? Like we're putting someone on the Supreme Court um, in a way that was, uh, Obama was not allowed to put his justice on the Supreme Court because mm-hmm. it was election season. The Republicans are doing the opposite, are doing the exact opposite of what they said mm-hmm. was right then. And we're putting someone on the Supreme Court who doesn't tell us how she feels about things. And we've, we've gotten to the point where it's so partisan, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg was 97 to three approved. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bork was 100 to zero or something. Mm-hmm. And we're putting someone on there that it's completely partisan, just like Kavanaugh forced through completely partisan. And these kinds of things have ripple effects. You know, like we're not, no, both parties don't want to even uh, clean, control their own house, yeah. their own damage. Yeah. Bork was a hundred to zero. Something like that. And, he, and he didn't make it because he smoked a little pot. Something like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. that's what it was yeah, that yeah. derailed him. They derailed him. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so, I don't know. I think of the thing in, in you have to clean your own house um, or it will come back and, and bite you. Your house mm-hmm. will burn down. And so we're at the point now with US where where we do need to understand what we're doing to our land, understand what we're doing to our people, understand what we're doing to our food. We need to make big changes now because uh, you know it's TikTok with climate change, TikTok with nature. And um, the more closely we can align with nature, the more we can vote in favor of the ocean and in favor of nature, it will benefit us mm-hmm. in the end. Mm-hmm. It's not really a choice anymore. No. You know, which makes the election all the more pertinent because of this issue, if for no other issue. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Moving on. Yeah, what do we got now? The teachable moment. We should point out that the Arctic Ocean still is not frozen. Oh, right. In late October. A record date for so, no freezing, no, yeah. no ice in the Arctic. I don't know or why something, I'm Or maybe not. It's not funny. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're just tired, bro. Um, because this is a, a film review podcast, yes, right? We had to do the documentary. Film. Yes. Uh, the documentary that we selected to talk about in this edition is The Perfect Weapon mm-hmm. on Netflix, yep. which is a pretty compelling deep dive into cyber warfare, how it originated, the current state of cyber warfare, the implications of it and what the future looks like. I watched it the other night. I was terrified at what I discovered and what I learned. How did it land for you? Um, my biggest takeaway is that I want to see the interview now. Oh, the interview. The movie. The movie. The, yeah, the movie. Yeah. The Seth so, Rogen movie. <laughs> the movie is basically, it, it kind of traces the origins of, of cyber warfare yeah. and, and you know kind of breaks down what exactly this is about and takes us up to the present and how nation states are, are kind of weaponizing hacker communities to disrupt countries like ours. And it, it, it starts with a dissection of the Stuxnet virus, mm-hmm. which is the first time that the United States used cyber warfare techniques in an offensive way, yeah. uh, as opposed to kind of you know defending our systems against being hacked. They actually were able to infiltrate Iran's nuclear program 
which was completely blocked off from the internet, right? What do they call that? Like uh, air gapped, yeah. where all the computer systems are not networked and not connected to any outside you know, uh, internet access. Somehow they were able to get a thumb drive uh, into one of these computers and it disrupted their systems, but did it in such a subtle way that it was somewhat imperceptible and allowed the United States to kind of tweak with their machinery and their equipment to derail it. Yeah, and grounded their reactors to a halt or basically, something at one point, yeah, right? Basically, yeah, basically. Um, it begins there, then, that's somehow the cyber Pearl Harbor, right? Yeah, basically, yeah, and yeah. and it gets leaked. This this virus somehow it gets yeah. leaked, and people become aware of what they. That's why we've heard of it, right? Yeah. The Stuxnet virus, and the next time that it gets used, in accordance with the the way the documentary tells the story, is with the the when Iran hacks the Sands Casino, right? Because uh, Adelson. Right, Sheldon Adelson. Uh, well, he went on television and spoke sideways about Iran yeah. in a non-flattering way. Something about well, he wanted how we Iran should, to bomb. Right? We, we'll we bomb should Iran. we should deploy nuclear weapons to their deserts, and who yeah. cares anyway? And that was deeply offensive to Iran for obvious reasons. So they patiently take their time uh, looking into his, you know, Sands Casino empire. This is a guy who's a billionaire. Uh, Venetian, with, yeah, basically. And figure out uh, a vulnerability, find their way in and completely, you know, disrupt his entire operation that way, really out of spite. Yeah, they, they took like, they were in there for like two weeks and like really took their time to figure out how to, destroy it or mm -hmm. something, isn't that right? Or is that the new thing? Yeah, no, they, they, no, they were very, Sony. they were they were, yeah. they were were patient. I mean, I think that's a hallmark of all of this. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to happen overnight. They wait, they wait, they wait, they do their homework. And it cost them 40 The important point being the asymmetry here, because yeah. we're a superpower and we put so much money into defense does not make us impregnable to these attacks that can be launched by a small number of young people who have advanced computer hacking skills. So it doesn't take a you know a smaller nation state or a third world country to be to completely, you know, derail a superpower. Yeah. When you have this capability, which is not that expensive. Right, right. And they were, I mean, these were state agents that did that. And it cost, I think what it cost them, $40 million, they said. And then mm -hmm. and then North Carolina. North Carolina, North Korea, excuse me. North Carolina. <laughs> North Korea did the same thing, right? When Because the interview was the next thing that mm -hmm. queued up, which was basically a comedy about uh, a guy with a, a popular interview show that um, Kim Jong-un happens to be a fan of. Right, James Franco plays the character of a talk show host, okay. a controversial kind of outspoken talk show host. Seth Rogen is his producer. The concept for the movie is, is Kim Jong-un is a fan of the show and wants to get on. So they travel to North Korea to have him on the program. And it's a satirical, and, and the government says, well, if you're gonna do that, like we want you to Kill assassinate him, him yeah, right? Yeah. So that's the setup for a satirical comedy that Seth Rogen and his writing partner sell to Sony, set up at Sony and it's going forward. North Korea gets wind of this, <laughs> they're not happy. And that's what sets in motion what ultimately became the big hack of Sony that yeah. we're all aware of where all the emails were exposed. And computers were, 70% mm -hmm. of the computers were basically destroyed. Right. It cost them tens of millions of dollars. Um, they had like a snipey, like uh, producer gossip and racism accusations mm -hmm. and all sorts of nastiness that was seeping out. And, you know, 
some of that leaked out to the media, but then some of it was leaked out to WikiLeaks. And that's one of the big takeaways for me uh, for this is that WikiLeaks was very available to North Korea and Russia mm -hmm. to do their bidding. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and um, I've always thought that about Assange. It's like, you know, there, there are people on, on the progressive left who like to think of Assange as this guy, he's all about civil liberties and let us see the dirty secrets of the governments. And I guess I understand that. But at the same time is he's got, he's basically become an agent for other governments mm -hmm. with zero transparency. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, there's no other way to read that when he's taking fruits of Russian hacks of the DNC, which is the next thing that's in this documentary, right. or the North Korea hacks of uh, Sony. Um, I mean, what other way is there to look at, at, at WikiLeaks other than a political operation? Right, so it fast forwards to the DNC hack yeah. and basically takes us up to present by demonstrating the evolution of these tactics from what were originally, you know, basically inserting viruses into networked computer systems mm -hmm. to now a virus of ideas, right? By, by basically propagating um, memes and other kind of, uh, you know, ideas- Fake news. Into, you know, into people's social media feeds mm -hmm the people themselves then do the work of the hacker for them by amplifying these messages that essentially pit people against each other and destabilize our institutions. Yeah, we've been hacked basically. Right. We as a people not, have been not hacked. A, yeah, not in the sense of our computers necessarily being hacked, but we've, our consciousness has been hacked. The result being the disruption of the stability of our nation, which is the 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 goal that they're trying to achieve. It's always been the goal, right? Right. And and you even see that in the in the handshake between Putin and Trump, where you could totally see Putin is the alpha in that hand that famous photograph, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and he's basically they, there's they want they want the country to flail, right? Yeah. Well. The alarming kind of takeaway and the, the reason for bringing it up is that this is not going away and these methodologies are only becoming more uh, savvy and sophisticated, less easy to detect mm -hmm. and more virulent with time. So it's not going away. And I don't know that there's much that we as individuals can do other than to make sure that our own houses are in order yeah. in terms of our own security, et cetera. And understanding that anything that you share online is is there forever, I think is also important. Um, and to know that you need to approach the information in your timeline with um, critical thinking skills, because we don't always know where these things are coming from, which brings up you know, another thing that I wanted to talk about, which is the advent of deep fakes. There was a podcast last week uh, Sam Harris's podcast with a woman called Nina Schick, who is an expert in the emerging technology around deep fakes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's quite terrifying as this technology continues to develop and iterate on itself, the idea that videos you watch, people can be manipulated to say and do anything. Mm -hmm. And it's not gonna be very long before we bridge the uncanny valley and it will be imperceptible to the eye and the ear, whether something is real or something has been fabricated. And with that comes the most virulent, virulent power to disrupt society because 
when you can't trust the veracity of anything that you see or hear, where does that leave us in mm -hmm. terms of our ability to communicate, let alone run a functional society? What is to prevent somebody from weaponizing that technology to pit world leaders against each other and lead us to the brink of nuclear annihilation. Like it truly is terrifying. And much like doping in sports, the technology is always in advance of the detection methodology. Hmm. What do you think? What's the I think it's us? scary. I, you know, I, I think about my kids, my youngest daughter, mm -hmm. and I wonder about the world that she's going to inherit where when you see a video of somebody speaking, you have to think, is that really the person? Crazy. Did they really say that? And myself as somebody who's in the public sphere, who has recorded thousands of hours on the internet and been on lots of videos, how hard would it be once this technology is, is adequately sophisticated to make me say, anything and have it appear to be real. So on a personal level, it's scary, but think about you know anybody saying anything. Yeah. I think the one takeaway I have on that is that, I mean, my hot take is that tech doesn't work that well and hopefully it'll just won't, you'll see glitches. You'll see the glitch. You would hope, but I would glitch you know, listen to this podcast and you may, you may think differently <laughs> I'm, I'm sure after listening to it. I mean, that is, I will, I will listen to it. That yeah. is, you know, one thing from the movie that I think could play to this is that, that the reason that we have such, we had a hard time with fake news here in this country, especially during the 2016 election and even up to the 2018, they kind of stop it at the 2018 midterms mm -hmm. um, was that, uh, there was a small office in uh, St. Petersburg, Russia called the Internet Research Agency, right. which was basically, sounds like to me a state operation, but it was with like hackers that were going in and creating, not even hackers, but they were creating f uh, real Facebook accounts. Like memes and, and yeah. And they were like becoming, and they were ingratiating themselves into different forums and they were spreading these uh, bullshit stories. Um, and it, all the way up to COVID, this was going on. And- creating events yeah. in the real world right. where they would protest they would they would schedule opposing groups to show up at the same place at the same time for yeah. the sole purpose of fomenting chaos. Yeah. And um I think Clapper was the was the head of intelligence at that time. Yes. And I think he was under Obama and then he stayed on for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And he left and the guy that took his place, at least under cyber command, um General Nakasone. Yeah. I mean, we criticize Trump a lot. We should say this. Nakasone came in in 2017, I think, mm -hmm. and did a much better job and yeah. really cared about securing the 2018 election. And what they did is they went in and they destroyed IRA. They destroyed the internet mm -hmm. research, uh, whatever. Is that what they called it? Uh, agency. Agency, Completely yeah. destroyed it um, and made them, uh, basically muted them right. in the run up to 2018. And, you know, he, like that's what gives me hope when we were talking right. about before is that there's people like Nakasone out there. Who understand it and uh, are up to the task. I mean, I think the thing with Clapper yeah. is yeah. that, you know, this guy's a septuagenarian or what yeah. he's been in intelligence forever. He's a, a traditionalist. And these tools are unlike anything a guy like that had ever seen in his career. And it's not his fault that he was ill-equipped to be able to deal with it because yeah. it's so new and different from 
traditional warfare methodologies that he was reared on. Totally, it feels like a Gladwell thing wait, waiting to happen. <laughs> you know, like yeah. Clapper, the old guard, who's like really brilliant and has had this great career, but couldn't handle this. Well, he one kept thing. getting, you know, he kept getting bested. Yeah, even after he, you know, was apprised of what was actually going on, he was always playing catch up and coming from behind. He was in North Korea negotiating for the release of prisoners while Sony was being hacked. Right. That's that's put in there. Right. Um, Another not necessarily relevant aside is that one of the primary talking heads in this movie, The Perfect Weapon, is a woman called Amy Ziegert, who uh, is somebody that I dated in my 20s briefly that I knew. I haven't talked to her in a very long time, but... She's essentially a genius, graduated magna cum laude at Harvard, did a Fulbright scholarship in Hong Kong, worked at McKinsey which in New York City for a couple of years, which is where I met her, then went and got her PhD in political science at Stanford. I believe Condoleezza Rice was her thesis advisor mm-hmm. and she became very close with Condi. And Amy has uh, you know, done a lot behind the scenes for I think a couple administrations and served unofficially in a variety of capacities became a professor at UCLA and is now a professor at the business school at Stanford. And she's also um, a member of the Hoover Institute, which is a conservative think tank, but she's distinguished herself as one of the leading, world's leading experts on cyber threats, cyber warfare, cyber terrorism, and basically and counterintelligence at large. Mm -hmm. And it was just cool to see her in the movie speaking so eloquently and informed about the gravity of this predicament, this situation that we find ourselves in. Yeah, she was great. I mean, the fact that there's all these brilliant minds kind of coalescing around this stuff has to be encouraging. Although the deep fakes does sound scary. It is. Um, But it's okay, man, you have a really cool podcast. So, you know, (laughs) I'm sure she knows about it. (laughs) No. It's a cool podcast until the deep fakes make me say something yeah. that I never said. Yeah, and then, then we're gonna yeah. get a lot of phone calls for the for <laughs> right. listener questions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, cool. So we ready to take a break for a minute? Let's take a break. We'll take a break. We'll be back with a little show and tell and listener questions and more goodness. Boom. Show and tell. All right, we're back. Hey. Show and tell, what do you got for me? Well, we got the book. You go we first. did it already. You go first. We I, did the I'm book. not gonna redo it. You already did the whole book. Voicing change. I had it all open here. What happened? It got pushed away. That's my big show and tell. All right. Get the book, but we already talked about that. So I'm not gonna belabor that point. What do you got? I got my Goggins It t-shirt. <laughs> so David Goggins just released his swag line, his yes. apparel line. Yes. In fact, I'm gonna take Goggins it? the coat off. Uh, Goggins yeah. it, you know, because it's good for me because the first <laughs> right. I ever heard of David Goggins was on your wonderful neighborhood podcast. Uh-huh. And after hearing him talk about his hundred mile run, cause at the time I'd, I hadn't started running again from a foot injury. And I thought, no, I can't, I, or no, from a, excuse, yeah, from original foot injury and I can't, I can't run. And, uh, Hearing that, I'm like, okay, I'm going to start running. And uh, April and I started saying Goggins it to each other whenever mm. you know, wanted to quit in a in a workout or something right. like that. And so the fact that Goggins it is in his, his inaugural clothing line. Basically, what was happening was people were putting out a bunch of uh, bullshit clothes 
using like taking souls and using his kind of oh they were kind of pirating his they were pirating and sometimes they sometimes they would just put it out there sometimes they'd say hey is this cool and he'd have to say no and they'd have to scrap it um i mean even rock even sylvester stallone put out round 14 t-shirts you can go on sylvester stallone's website and Mm -hmm. you can buy round 14 t-shirts obviously that's a uh connection to goggins and his book um and so he's like i might as well do it myself and so he's got this great line of you know using his phrasing and he has a this kind of trident style dg um right logo. he's got this logo that's that that's a trident and i've got it it's in the blackout form this is uh-huh. the logo and then taking souls in the back mm-hmm. and so it's his favorite his best catchphrases he's got a merry christmas shirt it's great i mean it, it's fun <laughs> it's fun clothing yeah. it fits well i love it it's uh so shop david Gog- shop.davidgoggins.com Good for and him. And I bought man. this, by the way. This is not sh- this is not swag. This you is didn't. Not you didn't you, <laughs> I paid. <laughs> he didn't send. He didn't send it to you as his co-author. No, because I want you know I support support right. the support the fam. That's cool. Yeah. Well, good for him, man. Especially, you know, his whole thing is speaking gigs now, right? So with COVID, I would imagine he's probably not doing as much of that as he could be ordinarily, and. Yeah, he's doing okay. Got to make a living, is he? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's cool. Here's the one thing. Here's the one thing that that here's here's the one you know thing that keeps coming up for me though. Yeah, is would David Goggins ever wear anybody else's line? No, he never did. He always wore plain. Yeah, with anybody else's statement on it. So people that truly want to be Goggins esque would eschew that, would they not? Yeah, but there's something inspirational about him that like, for me, the Goggins is perfect. Cause it's like, yeah. that's, it's something that I actually created. Uh-huh. I thought of it myself, like without even knowing it was something. And, I, th- yeah. I think he's kicking around LA right now. Yeah. Uh, a buddy of mine texted me the other day and he, he was out running mm-hmm. somewhere in Los Angeles. I won't say where. And he came across Goggins who passed him. And so he ran to catch up to him and he said, hey, David, can I pace you for a little bit? And he goes, no, I run alone. And he just darted off, <laughs> which I respect. Yeah, man. As somebody who enjoys my alone time running. And he uh, he's running, he was running only a few days after the 240 mile race. Right, like, that's what's crazy. Yeah. Cause it's only been like a week and a half it hasn't or been two long. weeks. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And I, I heard some stories about, about the race. It was, uh, yeah, incredible. Taking souls. He's out there doing it. And so, uh, yeah, so don't worry about his speaking gigs. He's, He's doing selling fine. some books. Good, I'm yeah. glad. Yeah. Um, all right, what are we doing? Are we doing listen, uh, listener, listener questions? questions? Let's go for it. Okay. Here's Randall from Nebraska. Hey, Rich and Adam, this is Randall from Nebraska. I need to ask both of you guys, it is a question for both of you. How do you handle when you get burned out? I've been running, primarily road running, I did my first marathon, and I really thought I was going to make it to the end of the year trying to get 2020 and 2020, and I'm just feeling burned out, and I'm not sure what to do to rejuvenate. I've been more vegan than normal. Just curious. Rich and Adam, have at her. Thanks for the show. I appreciate what you guys do. That's a great question, Randall. I think it's very relatable and also not surprising. If you do any one thing for too long, you're gonna burn out or at a minimum get stale, right? Mm -hmm. And if you want to have longevity in whatever it is that excites you, you have to take breaks or you have to mix it up in order to rejuvenate yourself. So 
My first piece of advice would be to loosen your rigidity around the road running. Is there a trail? Can you go running on a trail? Yeah. Can you get on a bike? Can you go do yoga, you know, virtually through some class online? Like find a way to spice up your regimen to keep it fresh. And ultimately, if all you're doing is running all the time, A, not only are you gonna get tired of it, B, it's not gonna make you the best runner that you can be. I think the best athletes are the ones that are connected enough to themselves to understand when they're starting to get stale and innovating on their routine to make them a more like resilient athlete mm -hmm. through functional fitness, strength training, core training, other types of um, exercises, both endurance and strength oriented, uh, flexibility oriented that ultimately, you know, keep you engaged in your fitness journey um, because sustainability is the name of the game, right? If all you're doing is one thing and you're, you're sick of it at this point, you're not gonna be able to go the distance unless you interrupt that routine with new and fresh things. Like not to belabor Goggins, but look at what David does. Like, yeah, he runs crazy amounts. And I think he sets an example that most people are never gonna be able to live up to, but he's also in the gym and he's doing pull-ups and yep. he's, you know, he's improvising in hotel rooms and he's always doing things, I think, you know, for his own sanity, keep him, you know, engaged in what he's doing by not it, for, by not it just being very, you know, monochromatic or one dimensional. And that's just his exercise stuff. But yeah, I mean, you know, keeping it fresh in your life can be, go, I think, tapping back into the beginner mind mm -hmm. and, you know, do something, pick up something that you're really a beginner at. And if you've run a marathon and you're good at distance running, maybe that's not it. Maybe like Rich is saying, uh, picking up a different fitness modality, but it could also be something completely unrelated to fitness, you know, taking a cooking class mm -hmm. or doing something completely different just to kind of refresh your mind. There's something about being new at something. I'm, I, this kind of hit me when I've been kind of in the same old rut, I, I, swimming and free diving and writing, and that's kind of what my whole life was and um, went and volunteered at the wildlife center near your place uh -huh. and was helping with marine mammal rescue and feeding marine mammals. And I'm like, doing something completely different. I'd never thought I would do it. And um, and it just like completely lit me up. It was like right. so fresh and different and new that I loved it. I mean, even volunteering. So I would, I would keep a real open mind. The new thing doesn't even have to be fitness related. It could be anything. Right, I think that's a great point. You know, on the, on the fitness tip though, I remember when I finally retired, when I retired from swimming and like, I never thought I'd swim again. I was mm. so over it. Like the idea of jumping into a swimming pool just seemed like the last thing that I would ever wanna do. And the idea that I found my way back to it and figured out a new way to fall in love with it was something I never would have predicted, but also something I don't think I would have been able to perpetuate if I'd just gone back to swimming. Like mm -hmm. it was triathlon, the, the the mix of those three disciplines that always keeps it fresh. Like if I was just riding my bike or just running, I think I would, you know, have difficulty perpetuating that. So, you know, that's an example of mixing it up within something that still is, you know, a sport itself. But the idea of going out of your comfort zone and trying new things, I think is super important. Like you hitting the gym with the weights again, throwing weight around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that and that's also a function of feeling a little bit, you know, not rejuvenated around yep. doing the same thing that I've been doing for like over a decade at this point. Right. Like and this guy's run, you know, Randall, it sounds like you've you've done one marathon. So, 
you know, there's an argument to be made that you're you're still in the starting gate of this exploration of running and the fact that you're already having difficulty motivating yourself, I think is a pretty strong indicator that you need to figure out a different relationship with this um, discipline that can keep you, you know, engaged. And, and a lot of it is, you know, I, I don't know him, I don't know you well enough to presume anything and I don't wanna overly project, but um, if you're feeling burned out after one marathon, perhaps you're putting too much pressure on yourself or you're too performance oriented that it feels laborious or like a chore rather than being something that should be fun and should bring your life joy. So if you can recalibrate your relationship to it, so you're approaching it and embracing it from a perspective of joy and exploration and curiosity, as opposed to a rigid relationship where you're you know, wed to your Garmin and caught up in the numbers and overly focused on performance gains, yeah. um, I think you'll find uh, you know, perhaps an opening to um, enjoy it a little bit more. I love that your advice about trails. Because mm-hmm. it could be the road is just right. Well, he lives in Nebraska, so yeah. I don't know what the trail situation is where he lives, but you know, maybe there's still still you know get off the road, maybe. Yeah. Okay, let's hit Missoula, Montana. Hey, Adam. Hey, Rich. My name is Robel, and I'm from Missoula, Montana. I got kind of a unique name, and I'm kind of just curious if you've ever met another Robel. Parents gave it to me, and I have yet to find another one, so that'd be kind of cool to know if you know Robel out there. But anyways, I had a question in regard to navigating living in alignment with your values. I know that there's a lot of issues with corporations, big ag, all those things. But in terms of like corporations, would you consider it living in alignment with your values if I'm not purchasing on say Amazon to get all my things, but I have a Roth IRA with stock in Amazon and I'm making money and I'm kind of vested in that community. I'm just having trouble kind of navigating if it's even possible to perfectly live in alignment with your values. And I'm just curious if you're that anal or maniacal about it, or do you just do your best part? Thank you so much. I appreciate your guys' work and uh, roll on. Thanks, guys. I don't know another Robel, do you? I've never met another Robel. You're my, you're my first Robel. Yes, the very first. <laughs> You'll always have a place in our heart, Robel, <laughs> for that alone. Robel from Missoula. Um, it's an aspiration. Mm. You can't, if you become overly rigid with these things, you're gonna drive yourself crazy. The idea is to always be striving to improve, to bring your actions into greater alignment with those values. But I think if you're overly stringent or strident about the minutia, Ultimately, you know, my answer is not dissimilar from the response we gave Randall, like you're going to burn out and it won't be sustainable because you're not gonna be able to adhere to it over the long haul. And I think getting caught up in the details and the minutia is to threaten losing sight of the bigger picture. So all we can do is try to tackle the biggest um, levers the most important, the most impactful things that we can do to align those actions with our values and understand that nobody's perfect. We, we live in a material world. Nobody is living um, without making some kind of impact on the planet, deleterious. Um, the idea is to try to reduce that, but 
if you lose sight of the forest for the trees and get caught up in like the diapers, like Adam was, you know, we talked about, you talked about like the diaper situation with you and like, and, and, and being, you know, caught up in that, like, yes. but in the grand scheme of things, like you're doing more than most. And, you, you know, I would say Adam, that you're in relatively very good alignment with those things, but Thank not you. everything is gonna, is gonna fall into place perfectly. My diaper game could be upgraded. Yeah, you could. Yeah. <laughs> Osher, my buddy Osher texted me, what's up Osher? And said, so tell Adam to relax a little bit about the diapers. He's, he's <laughs> doing he, good. He might, that, thank yeah. you. Thank you, Asher. Asher? Osher. Osher, thank you, Osher. On the other hand, I've gotten like three messages this week on different advice, but always right. very kind and mm-hmm. nice advice. Helpful, good. And I will, we will upgrade. But um, I didn't expect to talk about diapers with Robel's question. <laughs> um, I agree. I think um, you know it's 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 a it's a, always going to be a moving target. There's always your life's going to change. It's going to expand and contract. It's it's nothing is is static, and so um, you do the best you can. I think there are ways to be the most impactful. Is is kind of like bring your own and looking at your diet and things like mm-hmm. that. That's probably, the diet is probably the single best way you can make a move on, on right. kind of if uh, you, big pollution yeah, taking, stuff. Yeah, taking a tip from like the drawdown yeah. blueprint playbook, focus on the things that move the needle the most and moving towards a more plant rich, plant centric diet is a huge thing. If you can develop a garden and start growing yeah. some of your food, like these are huge things and, not getting caught up in like, well, I ordered this thing from Amazon and I should, it's like, yeah, there's better ways of doing everything, right? I think that the interesting existential dilemma that he's pointing to though, which I share, is that the market economy is kind of problematic for sustainability. I mean, it's problematic for a more egalitarian society. The fact that the stock market dictates so much of the moves companies make is the reason that they squeeze wages. It's the reason that wage growth has not kept up with uh, CEO pay even close. It's the reason that we have um, environmental problems in, in a political landscape where money is buying votes uh, you know, in favor of special interests. All of this comes back to the market economy. And so, you know, if 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 you're being good about not buying stuff through Amazon because of the extra packaging, and you're vested in Amazon as a stock, you know what are you doing? And and I am sympathetic to that because for a long time I wasn't an Amazon customer at all. I did become an Amazon customer. Now, mm-hmm. like to be completely transparent, a good part of my living is based on sales through Amazon right. as the book sales. So, uh, you know, like. I'm 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 a party to all of that, and I do understand the the tension there, and like like does that align with who I am? And um, you know, I mean, uh, to be quite honest with you, I stopped thinking about it that much, mm-hmm. you know, and I just try to keep it more simple than that. But I like that Robel that you're bringing it up because I think it is it is fair to bring up, and I understand where you're coming from, and I don't have a perfect answer for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we'd all benefit from doing an honest objective inventory yeah. of our behaviors and our kind of daily practices and how they um, implicate these problematic systems. But we live in a capitalist society and you know, short of, of completely reconfiguring you know, how we live our lives and the way our government functions, um, there's going to be you know, things that we do that are not great. 
right? Yeah. And all we can do is try to continually, you know, iterate on what we do to, you know, bring those things closer into alignment. There you go. I mean, there are shareholder activists that kind of like that try to organize shareholders to go and push uh, mm -hmm. companies towards a, per, a social or environmental goal. There is kind of that whole movement as well. Um, it'll be interesting to see where things go, but I guess the short answer is not that maniacal or anal about it. Right, but Robel could become an activist shareholder and start accumulating lots of shares of Amazon. Yeah. And then he can show up at the shareholder meeting and make a big stink. And, and Bezos would have to talk to you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Last one, we're going down to Fullerton, California. Hey, Richard Adam, my name is Evan. I'm 26 and I live in Fullerton, California. Uh, I've been a big fan of the podcast for a few years now. And as a graduate student pursuing my Master of Public Health degree, your discussions are very inspiring. In my early 20s, I experienced some body dysmorphia issues and even developed somewhat of a binge eating disorder as a result of competing in bodybuilding shows. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on eating disorders among males and if this is also an issue that you encountered within the ultramarathon community. Over time, I've developed a better relationship with food. However, I believe that it is an issue that needs more discussion, especially among males. So. Thank you both so much for taking questions and for all that you do. Thanks. That's a great question, Evan. I'm, I'm really grateful uh, for this question because I do think that it's kind of a, a sleeping lion or an elephant in the room that mm -hmm. doesn't get enough airtime or discussion. There's plenty of conversations around um, eating disorders in females um, and it's almost never discussed how that, um, dysfunction impacts men, but mm. I think it inf impacts tons. More than you and think. tons of dudes. I think tons. more so now than ever with social media and everything. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. So whether you're a bodybuilder or you know, a gym rat who's trying to, you know, basically, you know, inhabit an impossible physique or you're a runner or you're a triathlete or a cyclist, who's trying to drop weight and get super crazy lean. And I've been part of that community. I've noticed those tendencies in myself. I've seen it in other people. And basically, it, it, I think it's, I don't know if I would call it an epidemic, but I think it's a very real thing that doesn't get enough airtime or discussion. And I think it's important to um, shed light on the fact that it does exist and it exists in numbers, I think that would surprise a lot of people. Mm. Um, I, the, there's a swimmer I know named Antonio Arguez, who was the seventh ever to do the Ocean Seven, uh -huh. um, the seven channel swims around the world. Mexican swimmer I've written about uh, before for the New York Times. And then I actually helped him write his book, which is published in Spanish in Mexico. And I think there's an ebook in English now called The Forever Swim. And he tells a story, it's a similar progression to you. He came up in swimming in um, Mexico and ended up swimming at Stanford. Mm. Um, but when he was in high school, he, he moved to Northern California in high school um, so, you know, as a way to kind of train and try to get better and, and make the Olympic team. And in senior year, his times were suffering because he, he was a bigger guy yeah. and he had, um, he had bulimia and mm -hmm. he never talked to anybody about it. He's just kind of recently started to talk to people about it. And he has a lot of heart for people who are like chubbier kids that are athletes. 
Um, you know, you just don't see that many that are, there are a lot of great athletes that are just bigger guys. Uh And so he had that a lot. So Antonio Arguez is someone I think you should look to and, and, um, and, and he's accessible online. Um, so that's the first experience I had with talking to someone about it in depth. And it was, he was suicidal. He had all sorts of issues with it and he was able to write himself. Um, and, 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 but you know, it takes therapy sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know of a prominent male athlete or otherwise who's taken this cause up to speak about it publicly yeah. at, a, at a high level. Maybe there is somebody who's doing that, I'm not sure, um, but somebody certainly should. And, and I yeah. would couch this by saying that um, I'm certain that the eating disorder statistics um, would show that this is this is a much bigger problem among women. Like the pressure on women to adhere to a certain yes. physique and the appearance pressures that they're shouldering outweighs what males endure for sure. Yes. So I wanna be sensitive to that. But at the same time, I think it's important to acknowledge that this is a very real problem among males. And I think in, you know, Instagram culture is exacerbating this when you see ripped dudes and Photoshopped images of, of guys and, um, I think there is more pressure on men and young men to look a certain way. And there's a more um, robust, like kind of body conscious culture around males than there used to be maybe even five or 10 years ago. No doubt about it. So let's talk about this more. I should I should maybe try to find somebody to come on the podcast and yeah. talk about it. I mean, I've talked about this with some women athletes. I had Amelia Boone on and I had Dotsie Bausch, but I've never had a guy come on to talk about this. It totally this. affects performance. I mean, Antonio, um, he writes about it in his book, uh, um, all about his experience in senior year level. And he was trying to compete for an Olympic spot at that point, mm. you know, like, and, and, and to see his times erode. It took a while though. He was able to still succeed for a while before his body really started to suffer. Break down. Break down, yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's a great question. And I appreciate your kind of being tra- open on this subject. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to say to all the young listeners out there, I do feel for you guys, this, this COVID thing is just continuing to drag on. It's a real bummer. And um, I feel for like pe- people seven to 27, you right. know, to be honest with you. Like, I can't imagine having to deal with that at a young age, 100%. When, you know, when I, you know, I mean, it's easier for us because we have a stable life and we have way, we don't, we're not, we're not in that, like young people need the community a little bit even more I and agree. rely on it. And yeah. um, and so I really feel for you guys and, and uh, thinking about you guys. Yeah, I agree. Um, I had a final thought I wanted to share about that. Yeah. I think, um, oh, well, two things. First of all, in the case of, of the guy that you wrote about, one of the good things is, is that when you become a marathon swimmer, like you gotta get, you kind of gotta get fat. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he calls it his bioprene. Yeah, you get to put on a ton of weight because <laughs> yeah. you need that fat layer yeah, to keep yeah. you warm in the yeah. open water. Yeah. All the open water marathon swimmers are like big people. They tend to be, but that there's yeah. like, Kim Chambers even thinks that, that there's, it's like the same idea with yardage equals faster times was an old concept in swimming, uh-huh. uh, you know, in training, right. accumulating yardage. She thinks that's a, uh, an outdated, outdated concept, concept of marathon swimming. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, but she's just kind of yeah. after doing it is when she's realized that. Yeah. And when you look at sports like wrestling, boxing, MMA, uh, and cycling and triathlon, where weight is, is you know highly pertinent, whether mm. you're trying to cut weight to make weight for a fight or you're 
focused on your power to weight ratio, which is critical in cycling. It's all about like getting as lean as you can without sacrificing power and finding that finding that inflection point. And most people take it too far. I got too thin at one point. I was like 158 going really? into the 2011 Ultraman. Um, and when you're in that state, you don't realize that you're too light. Like you're just like, I can get lighter, you know? Mm. And it's dysfunctional. And, you know, I immediately put weight back on after that and have never gone to that place again. But I can see how it happens. And being an addictive personality myself who's had issues with food, you can lapse into this and it takes on an energy of its own and becomes a thing before you have any objective perspective on it. And I think with dudes, you can hide it or because there's not a permissiveness around talking about it, that it perpetuates more than it should because you know, dudes don't feel confident being vulnerable with other dudes, like, hey, I have an eating disorder. Like right. you just don't hear those conversations in a male locker room or anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we can create a welcome environment for those conversations to happen, I think we could, you know, all be better off. Evan's starting it right now. He is. So Evan, thank you for thank that. You, sir. Um, I think we did it. Are we done? We did it. That's we rocked it. another one. I think this might be the most succinct roll on that we've done. Is it? We're gonna land Check this plane. How long we've we been at it? It's been Good. a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've been here for a while. Are you bored? No, Are you I'm bored not, of yourself? I, I'm never bored of my own my own speaking voice. I could keep going. <laughs> I feel good. And as we head into the election a week from now, mm. I maintain my optimism. Me too. I believe. I believe. I believe in I believe in three things. The Lakers, the Dodgers, and old Joe. One down, one on the brink, and old Joe bringing up the rear. I believe in I believe in myself, the American people, oh. and our democratic institutions. <laughs> Vote for dolphins and rainbows. <laughs> okay. Um, cast your vote, participate in our democratic experiment. Yeah. And we'll catch you on the other just, side. Just vote. It's okay. Yeah. We love you anyway. I love you. I love you, Adam. I love you too, Rich. Good. Um, we'll be back in two weeks with more Roll On. Until then, uh, you can follow Adam at Adam Skolnick on the socials. I'm at Rich Roll. Pick up or pre-order, I should say, the new book, Voicing Change, on the new Rich Roll website, richroll.com slash VC or voicingchange.com. Uh, leave us a message if you want your question answered on the show, 424-235-4626. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. You could check out the show notes as always on the episode page for this episode, where we'll have links to everything that we talked about today, uh, to watch the documentaries and to read the news articles, everything that we discussed. Uh, you can also submit your question on our Facebook group. Uh, and that's it. That's it, man. Right on. Be good right out on, there. Right on, right on, right on. Right on, right on, right on. That's right, man. To the Watch generally them. heroic Adam Skolnick. <laughs> To the generally heroic rich role. I, I'm going to call everybody GH. GH now. That's the thing. <laughs> um, cool. I want to thank everybody who helped put on today's show. Jason Camiola for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis for videoing today's show. Jessica hey. Miranda for graphics. Allie Rogers for portraits. Georgia Whaley for copywriting. DK in the flesh here today Yeah. for advertiser relationships and theme music by Tyler Trapper and Hari. Appreciate the love, you guys. See you back here in a couple days 
with another great episode. Until then, go to the ballots, cast your vote if you're an American. If not, if you're not an American. Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Peace. Plants. Namaste. (laughs) 